Father, we ask your guidance and direction even as we look into your word. God, anoint me to speak. Release your anointing through me that the words bring life. God, challenge us, encourage us, correct us. Whatever needs to be done, we just open ourselves to you. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name. So imagine that there's a man or a woman and they've got a cough that's just overwhelming. Lots of coughing going around these days. And because of this cough that he can't sleep at night, you can't go to sleep, it keeps you awake most of the night. Because of this coughing, you can't even carry on a conversation that lasts more than 30 seconds because you're coughing in the person you're trying to talk to's face. So this cough is just relentless and it doesn't go away. So finally, it must be a man because finally they go to the doctor. And when they go to the doctor, the doctor does all of the appropriate tests, listens to your lungs, does all the thumping thing, and then does a chest x-ray and does all of his tests. And he goes and he, he looks at all the results of the tests and he knows he's in a little bit of trouble because the news is bad. It isn't a cough from a cold or the flu. The man has lung cancer. Imagine then that the man, the doctor knows that he's going to go back into that little room and and talk to this man and it's going to be really, really, really tough news to handle. So when the doctor walks in to the room and sits down in the exam room with the man, he looks at him and says, well, I got all the tests back and I'm going to prescribe to you a very, very strong cough medicine. And I want you to start taking it right away and it should start to work right away and I think you'll sleep better tonight. And you'll feel much better in the morning. The man goes home. He takes the cough syrup. And lo and behold, he sleeps better during the night. And he wakes up in the morning and feels better. Yet all the while, the cancer is eating away at his lungs and eating away at his body. And he's going to die. What an exciting illustration. Well, a lot of us, in our own lives, try to treat the cough in our lives in a similar fashion. The cough can be a whole lot of different things. Not a literal cough. It can be the pains and hurts that we've experienced in the past. They can be relational issues. It could be stress from work. It could be anything like that. It could be lust. It could be pornography. It could be a drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Whatever that cough is in our life, it doesn't matter what it is. We, we, we sort of diagnose it ourselves, and we think we've discovered the problem, and then we start looking for a cure. But the problem is, just as the case would have been in that man, it wasn't very, very long, and he's going to start coughing again, and it's going to get worse. And the same thing happens in our own lives with those cough things in our life. We think we know what the problem is, we call it the problem, and then we try to fix that problem, and usually in our own strength. Now, I know all of us do that. I do that. And I experience a lot of people who come to me with problems, with a cough. They don't have the privilege of a stethoscope and an x-ray machine. But the results kind of go similarly so often. They come, and I say, what's going on? And they start to tell me what the problem is. It's my job. It's that boss. It's my wife. It's my husband. It's the drugs. 
It's pornography. It's everywhere. And they could go on, and you could just put whatever you want in there, whatever the cough is in your own life, and you want somebody to help you fix it. And boy, I, I can start to come up with a lot of good ideas now. I've been doing this for a little while, so I can sort of start trying to fix the cough. But part of me's wrestling inside because I know there's cancer. And it's not just the cough. But I also know most of us don't like to deal with the cancer, the root, the thing that's in our life, instead of that thing that's on the surface. Because no matter what, we can go out of the building or go on in our life in the next day and the cough comes back. Why does it keep coming back? It keeps coming back because we're not dealing with the real issue, the true issue. And I want to challenge us today as I go through this that with this reality that the real issue is an idol in our lives. Idolatry. Which brings me to the title of the message. Idols. Who me? Everybody got one of those in their house? We'd look at that idol and say, that's a problem they had way back then. No wonder Moses got so mad. No wonder God opened up the earth and swallowed a whole bunch of people. If we had an idol like that in our house, I hope he'd do the same thing to me. Well, let's look at the next slide. No way. Not me. Anybody recognize that symbol? Where is it from? American Idol. Do you think one day they just randomly decided to choose that for the title of that show? Or do you think they might have actually researched to come up with a title that they knew would grab the culture of the American person? So they would turn on the TV and watch that show. They don't produce multi-million dollar television programs without researching the title. American Idol. Why? Because they know Americans love idols and we have idols all over the place. And they figured they could show us a new idol. They want you to run home. What night's it on? You know what's coming. Way to be smart. You're ahead of me. I have no idea what night's. Yes, I do. We come home from church and they record it. No, they don't. Oh, well. They want you to turn it on and watch it, no matter what you're doing. They want you to record it if you've got to be gone, so when you come home, you can run in and get in front of that other idol in your basement. Ah, that's where ours is anyway. With all the chairs facing it. And turn it on and be mesmerized by American Idol. That's a little closer to home, isn't it? We don't have a golden calf, but we do have some idols in our lives. We don't take idols very seriously. We figure we don't have a golden calf in our house or anything else that we go bow down to as an altar, and we just kind of forget it. God takes idols really seriously. In Exodus chapter 20, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. It just happen to be the first and second commandment for those of you that know them. You shall have no other gods before me, it says in verse 3. No other gods before me. You shall have no other gods. Now, he's not saying you can have a list of gods as long as I'm on the top of your list. No, no, he's saying no other gods. 
before me. And when I read that, I can read that sentence and I can think two ways. No other gods before me, no one in front of me. Or I can read it this way. God looks around in my life and there is no gods anywhere before him. It's like looking out into a, a, a great expanse and there's just being nothing out there. I think God maybe means it that way. And then it goes on to the second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And I'm going to read verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then he says this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Well, most of us would hurry up and say, well, I don't hate God. So often in Scripture, we see that word hate used where it really means it better be the number one priority in your life. Do we have idols in our life? Some of you may have heard of the man named Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness is a writer. He's a comment- he writes books that are commentaries on America, our culture, our government, but he also writes from a very strong Christian perspective. And in the case of idols, this is what he wrote. He says, idolatry is huge in the Bible. He says it's dominant in our personal lives. And then he says it's irrelevant in our mistaken estimations. It's irrelevant in our mistaken expectations or estimations. So what's he saying there? It says, I don't think it's a big deal. It's a big deal to God. We may think it's irrelevant. We'd be really, really wrong. God wants to be the thing in our life, not one of the many different gods in our life. I'm going to try to say this now, and I don't know if it'll be clear, and I'm going to try to pull it together later on, but if you're like me right away, that means everything else is bad. No. No. Many, 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 many things out there are what's called amoral. In and of themselves, they're neither good nor bad. But it's what we make them in our own lives and in our heart that makes them good or bad. Whatever it is you kind of like, and you might already be thinking, oh, sure, Mike's calling that an idol. No, that's not what I'm doing. But as soon as something that we really love or are passionate about becomes important in and of itself, we're on a dangerous slope. Because everything in our life should be done or should bring glory and honor to God. And there's many, many things in our lives that we can do that, that if not careful, they can become idols. Shoot, I need to love and treat my wife to bring glory and honor to God. Now, if I start to love and, and treat my wife in such a way to bring glory and honor to me, I'm in, a, I'm in trouble. She has just become an idol in my life. I like to watch a football game, especially when the Packers get hammered. Uh, forgive me. Is Cindy here? Oh, yeah. I, I was just kidding. But if I'm not careful... I found a video online. I, I was going to show it. It's done by the skit guys. I like to use their videos. They're really funny. And he starts out by showing a bunch of people worshiping idols. 
in India and different parts of the world and traveling down this dirt road and there's little idols and, and statues and shrines and they're everywhere. And he said, good thing America's not like that. You're probably having a hard time relating to what I'm trying to point out, he says. Gee, look at the way they dress. They dress ridiculous. Look at the costumes. They're painting their bodies. They're jumping up and down and they're screaming and doing all kinds of gyrations. And then they all gather together and they all start jumping up and down and doing stupid things together. And he says, well, let me just show you something maybe you can relate to better. And then he goes to a football stadium and shows the guy with his whole body painted, jumping down, up and down. And then he shows the guy with the things sticking out of his ears and his head and his helmet and a crazy costume. And he shows the billion-dollar stadiums we're building now, not just million-dollar stadiums. And he says, maybe it looks something like this. Now, am I calling football an idol? No. It's amoral. It's neither good nor bad. But the place it takes in your life can make it an idol. I know people who spend more money on one weekend going to a football game than they give to, give to the Lord's work in a whole year. I think it's an idol. I think people can go out and spend more money on a meal in a restaurant than they give to the Lord's work in a whole year. I think it's an idol. We'll see what you think in a little while. But let's look at what God thinks. We're going to go to Joshua chapter 24. And this is an interesting... There's a good, we're going to focus on a couple of verses I think a lot of you are familiar with, but I want to set the stage for it first. In Joshua 24, I'm, in, in verses 1 through 13, Joshua is going to speak as the mouthpiece of the Lord. So he's speaking as a prophet. And it tells us in the first couple of verses, he says he draws all the leaders, all of the, 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 the elders of the tribes, he draws everybody together, he has everybody's attention, and now he's old. Joshua, they've been in the promised land for a long time. He's, he's over 100 years old. His life is about over. And he draws them together and then he says, Thus saith the Lord. He is now prophesying. And what he does in those first 13 verses is he kind of redoes a 13-verse history of what God has done for the people of Israel. And he starts out by saying, From the ancient times... And he goes all the way back to Abraham's father. Before God called Abraham and made a nation from Abraham. And he says, going back to Terah, the father of Abraham. And he says, when they served other gods. And then he says, but he called Abraham. And out of Abraham he made a great nation. He took him through all of Canaan, it says, and he destroyed all the enemies that came before him. And he multiplied his descendants as the sands of the sea. And he says, and then he gave him the son of promise. He gave him Isaac. And boy, all these names, they don't maybe mean much to us, but you know, when he says Terah, the father of Abraham, man, they know right now. And then he mentions some other guy named Nahor that we go, huh, well, that was Abraham's brother who was of the lineage of Rebekah and, and Leah and Rachel. So these people are connecting instantly to what he's doing and referring to their history. And then he says, Jacob's sons went to Egypt. For us, that would be the story of Joseph and the going into Egypt and becoming slaves for all those hundreds of years. And then he says, then he brought Moses and Aaron onto the scene and delivered them. And then he talks about the Red Sea experience. He, he's trying to drive home the point. Do you get it yet? God is really good. He is great. He is powerful. And then he continues, the Red Sea parts the sea and you go through it. And then all of the horsemen and chariots of Pharaoh are coming after you to destroy you. And he swallows them up in the Red Sea. 
And then he says, you lived in the wilderness a long time, but he took care of every need every day. He was faithful. And then finally, they're going to cross the Jordan, and Joshua is going to become the leader. Moses has died. And he miraculously stops up the Jordan River, and they know more than cross the Jordan. And then there's this city called Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down. And he says, he gave you the land, the promised land of Cana. And he drove out all the enemies before you. And he says, I've given you this land that you never labored for. I'm giving you cities to live in that you didn't even have to build. You're eating from vineyards and olive gardens that you didn't have to plant. He goes through this whole story in 13 verses, showing them how everything that they had, everything that had been given to them, their deliverance, their calling from a life of sin and idol worship, all of it, they're saying, it was by the hand of God. That's how it happened. And then we come to verses 14 and 15. But before we look at those, you may have already, but before we go to them, when I think of that picture of him giving a history of Israel, I couldn't help but think of myself and my own life. God called me while I was a sinner and a reprobate condemned to hell. I was an absolute idol worshiper. No statues, lots of idols. I didn't deserve to be called and he called me. And His mercy and His grace, He called us. He saved us. He's been with us every step of the way since we become His children. He's been faithful to us, even when we're not faithful to Him. He watches over us and protects us no matter what we're going through. And we go through some tough stuff. I think, man, we're just, I'm just like, most of believers are just like Israel. We need to be reminded every now and again just how faithful and loving and kind God is and has been. And Joshua is trying to plant in their minds an understanding of he's been this way since the calling of Abraham. He's this way today and he'll be this way in the future. And then comes verses 14 and 15. After he's really convinced them there's nothing they've done in their own strength, And every blessing that we have is from God. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods, little g, which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And then he says, If this is disagreeable to you, if this is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Therefore, Joshua is speaking as the mouthpiece of God, and he says, because of God and who he is and what he's done, You need to do this. And he uses words that fear the Lord, reverence God, serve Him as a slave, as as a worker, worship. These These words have so much more meaning than just the way we define it in our English language. And he says fear in sincerity. 
sincerity, completely, entirely, unimpaired. Serve him having integrity. Truth. Faithfulness. Some translations actually use the word faithfulness instead of truth. Be faithful. Serve him in faithfulness. Without hypocrisy. How many of you have ever said, boy, I hate a hypocrite? Most all of us. Guess what? Most all of us are one. Lots of times. This is kind of a slap in the face of Israel, if you haven't caught that yet. Joshua's saying, man, this is God, and it's time we change the way we're living. Put away. Turn away from. Depart from. Dispose of. Of what? The gods. I don't think... If we'd have seen the people of Israel traveling in all their tribes, you'd have seen a whole lot of altars to false gods packed in there. I don't think they were carrying any golden calves. I'm wondering, what in the world's Joshua talking about? What little gods? Well, I think he'll give us a clear picture of what they mean in another verse we'll get to in just a minute. But Joshua knows something. He says, if it's disagreeable to you, if it's disagreeable, in other words, if you don't want to do this, if, if to you this is an evil, unpleasant thing, Choose. Joshua goes from gently slapping him in the face to being very, very, very direct. Choose. Okay, I'll get around to it someday. No, choose today, he says. Choose today. It's as if he's saying to God's chosen people, remember who they are. This is God's chosen people. They've been, they've been living in the promised land. And he's saying, get rid of the little gods in your life. Choose today. Boy, once again, my mind kind of went to me. God, I've been living under the blessings of God. I'm a child of God. I've got the promise. I'm living in a promised land of sorts already because I'm his child, but there's this promise of a heavenly promised land coming. Whoa, this is awesome. Okay, Mike, that's great. Choose today whom you're going to really serve. It's time to make a decision. Joshua had made his. He let the people know right away. He says, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. There was no pussyfooting around here with Joshua. He was not going to straddle the fence and walk with one foot here and one foot here and hope he survived. He had made a decision. He wasn't going to test the wind to see which way the public opinion was blowing. He wasn't going to see if it was okay for the parents and family or relatives, aunts, uncles, friends, fellow workers. He says, for me, I've made my choice. I have decided I am going to serve God, me and my house. What about all the consequences? He didn't care. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve the Lord. How could Joshua be so certain? He knew God had been faithful. He knew what God had done. He knew that God was an all-powerful God. He knew not only was the powerful God who, who at his own whim in his own plans, called the nation of Israel into being through Abraham. He knew he was the God who sent the plagues on Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, who fed them for 40 years in the wilderness, got them water when they needed it, didn't allow a single, single piece of clothing to wear out. 
He knew that he was the God who had went before them when they crossed the Jordan River and came to Jericho. He knew that he was the God who had tore the walls of Jericho down and he knew he was the God who had given victory over every enemy. And he knew he was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He knew that God was present and powerful today and he was going to be present and powerful the rest of the time. And that's the kind of reminder and the encouragement that I need, that we need as Christians. We need to choose today whom are we going to serve. In our culture, it's getting harder and harder and harder. We need to make a choice and be ready now before the real challenges come. Joshua not only knew God, he knew the people. Verse 23, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 23 in that same chapter. Therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. And incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, just in the English translation, I believe you miss the main point if you're not very careful. Remove the gods from your midst. What does that mean to you? Do you picture in the middle of the camp or maybe around the family campfire? No, that's not what it means. We get a glimpse of what it means when he follows up and says, incline your hearts to God. The Hebrew word there translated midst means in that center of your being. Those gods that are in your heart. Those things that you're carrying along from Egypt. Those things that you've picked up from the cultures that have been around us. The Canaanites, the Amorites. Those things in the midst of you. Your hearts. He's saying, get rid of those gods. He knew the people. Sounds like he knows me. What are those things in our heart that we're still harboring as idols? I'm going to define an idol a couple of different ways, and you could define it many many ways. But I think we need to have some sort of working definition to to see the potential idols that are in our heart. Because most of us, at least most of the homes I visited, don't have a golden calf anywhere that I've seen. So I think we all have idols. So where are they? What do they look like? Well, I define an idol a couple different ways. One, anything that we put above God in importance. Anything that we put above God in importance is an idol. But at the same time, I think that if someone would say to me, do you have any idols? And here's how I define it. Anything you put above God. The first thing I'd say, I don't put anything above God. I'm smarter than that. I am not an idiot. Nothing's above God. Now, they want to, might want to do some snooping in my life to see if I'm telling the truth. But I wanted to define it a little further. And I went this way. Anything that takes a place of importance in and of itself rather than bringing glory to God. It's an idol. I like football. I really don't believe it's an idol in my life. I like golf. It always has potential to become an idol in my life. We watch that carefully. And there's other things like that. And we all have stuff that we like. You know, God has given all creation. He created everything that we know and see. And then he created us and says, you're the sparkling gem on top of all my creation. The rest of it's just for you to enjoy. So I believe God wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to be blessed with different things, different habits, different things in creation. I don't think he wants to be, you know, Mr. Scrooge. Have no fun. Be a miserable Christian. But at the same time, he doesn't want them to become idols because if those things are that important, he'd have figured out a way for us to take them to heaven with us. 
but we won't. They're not that important to be put in a place where they don't bring God glory anymore. And really, all of those things can bring God glory if we look at them in the right way and handle them rightly. But how do we recognize these things? Our culture is filled with idols. I'm going to take it even a little step further than that. Our culture is doing everything it can possibly do to market idols in our life. Here's what I mean. Turn on a commercial. Listen to a commercial. Look at a hard print ad. They are trying to convince you that whatever it is they're selling can give you what only God can give you. Peace, happiness, joy, contentment, prestige, all of those things. If you just buy this, if you just have this, Man, I mean, gal, it's unbelievable. Websites now being advertised on TV for one-night stands. Why? Because it'll fulfill you and make you happy. Right? Buy this car. No, 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 no. Not the one that sells for 20 grand. This one that sells for 113. Because you'll be happier. It'll fill you with joy. Build a bigger house. Do that. Do this. Eat way more food than you need. Because you'll be content. It doesn't matter. They're marketing idols. And it works. We fall for it. Because most of the world is looking for something to satisfy. Something in their life. And the only thing they can do it is God. So how do we see idols in our life? Well, Kyle Eidelman, that maybe rings a bell to most of you, who wrote the Not a Fan stuff, He has written another book and study called God's at War with the Little G. And in there, and I've not read the book yet. I've just read some excerpts of different things from it. But one of the things that caught my attention was he listed some questions that he says to ask yourself to discover if there might be idols in your life. And I'm going to just throw out a few of these questions and see how we do. I failed miserably, just so you know. Here's question one. What has left you feeling the most disappointed in your life? Well, did you maybe put just a little bit more importance on that thing, whatever it was, than you maybe should have? Was that thing's purpose and goal really to bring glory and honor to God? You know, one good way to reveal an idol is just to listen to yourself complain. Complaining often reveals an idol in our life. Second question he said was, what do you sacrifice your finances for? As soon as we start looking at money, the heart is revealed quickly. You know, I can give $10 to the Lord at work and $20 for a pizza. And one of them makes me happy and the other one's agony. Right? I'm not saying that's us, but boy, there's a lot of people who would think that way. Our biggest investments are often our biggest idols. What do you worry about? Could reveal idols in our life. Where do you go when you're hurt and you need comfort? Henry Blackaby wrote, anything you first turn to for help instead of turning to God is an idol. 
There's lots of us that turn to drugs and alcohol when we have pain and hurt. People turn to pornography, different types of immorality. Anybody ever heard of something called comfort food? Think about that one for a second. Comfort food? Maybe it's become an idol in our life. What is it that makes you mad or angry? Why do I lose control? What, you know, what is it makes me mad and angry? So many of the things that we would first answer those questions with are nothing but the cough. They're not the real issue. They're just symptoms of what the real idol is, the real stronghold is in our life. What are the things you dream about? What are you really, really, really passionate about? Now, God gives us dreams. God gives us passions. But when they're from God, guess what? They bring Him glory and honor. He is still my focus, not the dream or the passion. Replacing God in my life. And here's the last question I'll ask, and he had more than these, but whose encouragement means the most to you? Oh, I wish fill in the blank would just speak some words of encouragement in my life. That person may be an idol in your life. I want to please God, right? That's what we want to please. We want to be encouraged by God. We want to be blessed by God. See how easy it is to, to, to gloss over idols in our lives. And I just want to reiterate, because we don't want to be legalistic, not everything that just fun is an idol. Not everything we do is an idol. God, we can walk out of here and say, geez, what are we supposed to do? Just sit in a chair with the Bible on our lap and close our eyes so we don't see anything bad? No. Is God the God of your life? Do you choose to follow Him? Do you choose to look at everything in your life as something that can bring glory and honor to God in some way, shape, or form? We don't want to get to the place where they become evil when they're really just amoral, neither good nor bad in and of themselves. And a couple last things. One, idols never truly satisfy. They never truly satisfy. We could talk to about idols as being lust of the flesh, but you ever, ever had unending satisfaction from giving in to the lust of your flesh? Lasts about a minute or two, doesn't it? I mean, there's sometimes I want to get so angry because I know it'd make me feel good to get it out. Well, it does for about that long, and then I feel guilty and regret and embarrassed. I remember in the bad days where drugs was my place to go hide. Wow, tough day. Go get high. Boy, before you were even high, you were feeling guilty and miserable. Seemed like a waste of time. Might as well get rid of that idol. And the list could go on and on, but they never ever truly satisfy. I think it's in Edelman's book, but I, I can't remember where I saw this, but it, it summarized it this way. It says, in fact, idolatry is always the tree from which 
our sins and struggles come. Idolatry. All of the other stuff is the leaves and branches. So if there's anything in your life that God may have pointed out, even as we were talking this morning, you need to repent. And then you need to guard your heart. Ask God. If you don't know what there, if there's any idols in your life, ask Him. He'll show you. And then you have to deal with it. And you have to face that thing that Joshua said, choose today whom you're going to follow, whom you're going to serve. The worship team would come on up. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you do give us and grant to us repentance that leads to forgiveness. Father, I pray that you will search my heart, search every one of our hearts, and reveal any idols in our lives. God, that we would be quick to lay them down. God, I pray that you would allow the spirit of what I tried to share today to come through, that no one would feel judged. This isn't legalistic. God, it's about living lives that honor you and bring glory and honor to you. God, I thank you for all the pleasures that you bless us with as the crown jewel of your creation. God, I pray that we would have a heart like Joshua and that we would truly choose to love you and to serve you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. One little caveat before we close. The word choose in the original language and the verb tense means You don't choose once. You choose over and over and over and over. 